brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. to Software Radio, Software Radio on time, on target. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrieri. Joining us, we have a very special guest. John Hancock was a member, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, fought in Iraq uh, during the Battle of Ramadi. I believe it was 2004. John, um, his unit uh, suffered probably the highest casualty rate of anyone during the uh, Iraq war, I believe it was one out of every four members of his unit was a casualty, either wounded or killed in action. And uh, with a lot of other people, John suffered from PTSD and he found um, some solace and some, some closure a little bit, well, not closure, but some, some help with that by walking across the United States and visiting members of the unit, visiting members of the Gold Star families. It is a incredible story, and we're going to welcome him to the podcast, and uh, we'll talk to him about that. John, t- thank you for taking the time with us uh, this morning, and this, this is uh, a, a, a big uh, pleasure for us. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for having me, brother, really. it's uh, it's, I, I, I read and subscribe and watch all the soft rep stuff, so uh, it's, it's really kind of humbling to be here and to be on it. Well, we're humbled because uh, when after I read your story, and uh, I I remember seeing something on CNN about it, and um, it, it's it's amazing because uh, you covered about nine thousand kilometers, which turns out, which I I did I can't do the math, so I had to ask you uh, offline about it. Five thousand eight hundred and seven miles. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a really long one. So it ended up starting September 11th of 2015 at 115 in the morning. I ended December 12th of 2016. Uh, so that that roughly rounds out to about one year, three months, and a day of walking. What was that averaging about 25, 30 miles a day? Yeah, I did about uh, you know on the low end I'd do about 28. Uh, on the high end I'd do about 32. I one day I did 45 miles, and I'll never do that ever again. <laughs> I used to think I was a rucking fool when I was in SF. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm here to tell you, John. Uh, nope. Uh, I get. <laughs> I my hats off to you, bro, because that is that's a lot of rucking there. And I, I'm assuming, you know, everything's carrying on your back. So what, what did it weigh, about 75, 80 pounds? Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're in the high desert and there's, you know, water's a little bit more scarce, I'd hum in right around 80, 82 pounds because I got to carry more water. And then, you know, in some of the more populated areas, I could I could dial that down to about 69, 71 pounds. Ooh, that's a heavy rock to be carrying almost 6,000 yeah. miles. Well, but, um, it, it, you know, here's a little tidbit for you, too. So if you end up walking 5,807 miles over the course of one year, three months in a day with 70 pounds on your back, uh, I started this walk at six foot. I am now humming in at five foot, 10 inches. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, that's why you know, most vets like ourselves, 
have bad backs and bad knees when uh, when when they get out. And uh, but you continued that, so. But we'll get yeah. into all that. We'll get into all that. Um, just uh, fill in our listeners and our readers on soft rep a little bit, bit about your background. Where'd you grow up and how'd you end up in the Marine Corps? Yeah, so I was a Navy brat, right? And I was born in Hawaii in Honolulu, uh, moved all over the world. My dad was a submarine commander, right? So 25 years in the submarine force. And uh, so I, you know, living on bases all over the place and understanding I wanted to be in the military from a very young age. I think I saw a Marine in a commissary one day, uh, just larger than life. I mean, this dude was a mountain of a man. And I turned around and I look at him and I look at dad and I'm like, hey, who is that? And he goes, oh, that's a, that's a force reconnaissance Marine. They're the most badass things on the planet. And I was like, well, that's what I want to be then. And then from that, that day forward, I just always wanted to be a Marine. And so, you know, going into high school, all of a sudden the Marine recruiters are in the cafeteria in high school. I walk up to him. I think I'm in ninth grade, first day of ninth grade. And I'm like, all right, so I want to join today. And they're like, all right, slow down there, spark plug. Like, why don't you graduate to high school first and then we'll talk. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, growing up, uh, one of my next door neighbors and my best friends growing up, their, their dad was the youngest sergeant in the Marine Corps uh, in Okinawa during World War II. Um, oh, wow. He lied about his age. So uh, he actually went in when he was 15 years old. And by the time he got to Okinawa, he was only 17 and he was a sergeant. And uh, we used to go over there and he'd regale us with stories about the Corps. And that, those were some fond memories for me. Oh, I'm sure, brother. I'm sure. I mean, it doesn't get any harder than that. <laughs> but go, can you imagine going through a boot camp as a Marine at 15 years old? I mean... And, and during Brother, wartime, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get out of bed by myself at 15. <laughs> I know. And, you know, during wartime, uh, I'm sure the, the well, the Marines are never nice uh, to their recruits anyway, but I'm, I'm sure during yeah. World War II, it was probably tougher even now than it is today. Oh, I could only imagine. So what year did you end up joining the Corps? So uh, I, well, in 2001, so I, I graduated from high school, I think in May. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I, 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 I walked right off the dais and then, you know, basically onto the, onto the airplane. Uh, I ended up graduating boot camp September 7th of 2001. And, you know, four days later, the whole wow. world changes. Yep. So, and, you know, I'm on boot camp leave at that point. The whole world is, is just on fire. And, uh, you know, there's little tickers on all the, on the bottom of the news, say, if you're active duty military, call this number. So I called that number and I said, you know, oh, PSC Hancock reporting for duty. Like I'm going to do anything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the guy on the other end goes right on. Yeah. So what unit are you in? And I said, I, I'm going to school of infantry. And he hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what, you know, what happens when you do what you told Right. So, <clears throat> you know, um, you finished your your uh, your school of infantry training, and then where were you assigned at after that? Oh, I went directly to Second uh, Battalion, Fourth Marines. Right. So we, you know, I'm on the East Coast. I'm at Camp Geiger, uh, right there next to Lejeune, and then I get orders cut to Second Battalion, Fourth Marines, uh, over in Pendleton, and. 
originally I think we had gotten some orders cut for Hawaii, but and so everyone was super excited. Uh, and then those got uh, those got recalled, and then next thing you know, I've got a second set of orders that come in says two uh, four, and I'm like, what is a Victor unit? And then I'm like, oh God, okay, here we go. We're going to the big boy unit. Uh, you know, Fifth Marines is you know the most combat decorated regiment in the history of warfare. Uh, and so we're going to that unit and I'm like, wow. Okay. And, uh, it, it, you know, it just went from there. We, we ended up deploying the first time to Okinawa, uh, and we got stop lost, stop moved. Right. So everything halts because, you know, we've got OIF one. So the invasion into Baghdad and then all assets uh, around the globe are positioned and then, and then kind of hold the freeze in place if you're not part of this push to baghdad uh you're going to stay where you are so we actually had to watch the invasion uh from a boat <laughs> uh right off the coast of korea at the time and you know the first cruise missiles go off the ship in march 19th and then you know the invasion starts on the 20th and we're just watching this and so we got this moniker uh back then that kind of float floated around fifth marine regiment and it was two four no war because, you know, now you've got, you we're all coming back around the same time. Uh, you know, everybody's coming back from Baghdad. We're coming back from Okinawa. We ended up getting stuck there for almost a year. Uh, and now you've got these Lance Corporals with all this chest candy and they're, they're war heroes. And you're like, good God. So, of course, you know, we're all walking around with national defenses. And, hell, you can see exactly who a 2-4 guy is. You know him. Uh, and so that really stuck with us. And so we, you know, we really wanted to get into the fight. And... Uh, because as a Marine, you want to be in the fight, especially an infantry Marine. You're trained for it. You want to go and do your job. And we uh, we got everything we asked for. So we ended up going into uh, Ramadi 2004 in February. Uh, we took our first casualty in March. And then April 6th, the entire city started just coming down around us. And you've got to think we're a uh, we're one battalion because Fallujah is going on at the same point. And so we're one battalion basically in an economy of force operation, just trying to hold on to this city. And we also have, and I think they actually did this correctly for us, but we also have a media blackout, right? So nobody's talking about Ramadi. Nobody's talking about what's happening there. Nobody's talking about the constant gunfighting day in and day out. Because if the if the world were to start realizing that there was only one battalion of Marines, and we're looking at about 900 true warfighters here, uh, and we're already fighting an enemy somewhere in the tune of 500 to 1,000 people, uh, if they started getting wind that they were really actually hurting us, you know, they would have just flooded Ramadi and we would have been eviscerated. So I'm glad that that media blackout happened. The problem that we run into now is that only now is the Battle of Ramadi in 2004 starting to really come to light for everyone outside of the Marine Corps. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, it wasn't until much later I started reading about Ramadi. And I, I was thinking back to, you know, when that was going on, I never heard a word about that back back here. You know, we were hearing yeah. about Fallujah, obviously. I mean, that was, you know, the quote unquote big story. But uh, very little was said about Ramadi, and it wasn't until long after the fact that we were hearing about that. And that's interesting that you said that, you know, with the media blackout going on. Uh, what yeah, was I mean, like even Oliver North came out and uh, he did a war stories on us. And um, we he, he kind of came to some of these people and I overheard him speaking about it later on. He goes, OK, so we've wrapped all the footage hey, we're not even going to publish this until you guys return home. 
Uh, and that, I, that's when I knew how bad Ramadi was, was when, uh, you know, patriotic reporters like, <laughs> like Oliver North uh, are saying, hey, we're not even going to say anything about this because we don't want to do anything to compromise you guys because you're already in a very tough situation. So what was the vibe like for you guys on the ground there? I mean, I, I know when you're in the moment there, you're, you're just thinking about the mission. You're thinking about that day. But did it strike you guys that, uh, you know, this is a lot bigger than we had envisioned when we went in? Yeah, when we first got there, you know, we were doing this whole SASO operation, which is stability and support operations, right? Mm -hmm. So you're walking around and you're talking to the populace. Hey, do you have any water? Okay, what's your electricity like? Oh, let's see if we can help you with that. And that, that happened for about the first month. Uh, and really what we were learning was uh, the army that we had taken, uh, we had taken over for. Uh, we had gone out on some patrol with them. Uh, in their Bradleys. And so I looked at the Bradley commander and I was like, hey, why don't you stop right here? I'm going to get out and me and my boys are going to go do a foot patrol. And you guys can pick us up three hours from now over here somewhere. And the guy turned around and goes, you're going to do what? And I was like, yeah, it's foot patrol. We're going to go out and foot patrol through the city at night. He goes, I, I wouldn't recommend that. And that's when I started realizing that uh, not only not only were we in for a world of something we had no idea we were getting ready to be in, uh, but that the enemy was truly uh, assessing us and and just kind of observing us and observing that we're definitely different than the army at this point. Uh, we're you know deep seating into the populace. We're deep seating into the uh, the local communities, and we're walking around and we're talking to people. Uh, and so I think that kind of threw them off, and uh, they had to watch us for a little while before they decided to make their first move. Uh, and their first move came. Uh, April 6th to April 10th, and it was uh, it was a slugfest, man. Right, and uh, I saw, you know, in, uh, in in the documentary, and we're going to get into the documentary as well, called uh, Bastards Road, um, that was made about your story. You have tattoos of all your fallen, uh, you know, Marine members on your arms, so you guys started suffering some really, really heavy casualties at that point. Yeah, and actually, that so that that little clip you see of uh, uh, the Marine with all the tattoos, that's actually Macintosh. Uh, oh, that's not you. No, no, no. I mean, I've got a bunch of tattoos, and I've got honorific tattoos all over my body as well, but he's got the list. Okay. Uh, and the, the, the crazy thing is that list on his arm is only Echo Company. Wow. Yeah. That's just so one start company. Un that's just one company. And when you start unpacking that, uh, we're at a 26% casualty rate. And it was, uh, it was, it was bad, brother. It was bad. And uh, nobody, nobody that went to Ramadi came home unchanged. Right. Because I, you know, um, obviously, uh, you know, I've seen some of the interviews with you. You suffered from PTSD upon returning, but I would imagine your battalion probably had an extremely high rate in that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and we see it to this day. Uh, I, you know, I talked to, I, since, and before this movie ever came out and, you know, during this walk and even before, right before the walk, I started really started to reach out to guys again and to, uh, to be around them and just to have conversations with them because I knew it was something that I had lost. And mm -hmm. as I'm going through this, and even to this day, speaking with some of these guys, there are a lot of guys out there that are still hurting. And, you know, this, 
I think this film has done a few things for them. Uh, one, it's, it's given them legitimacy in, in our story uh, and really tried to help propel the narrative around, you know, what Ramadi was for a lot of guys. Uh, but two, it's also giving them the unconscious I, acknowledgement, permission, if you will, to start to open up to their family members who, you know, have now seen this film as well. And now they, they have a grounds to understand uh, just a little bit of what went on over there. You know, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I look back on my own experiences and then today, I mean, w- what's going on and I'm not bad mouthing the VA. I'm not. Uh, the VA is like <laughs> uh, light years better than they were when I got out. And, but they still have right. a long way to go. They still have a long way to go. And we're learning what we can about PTSD. I think as you know, day by day, but it, it's sure. amazing. This, I think this generation has done more, you know, for each other. I think veterans in uh, this generation are, are, are realizing, Hey, you know what? Uh, we have to rely on each other because that's what we did in the, uh, in the military. And that's what we're going to have to do when we all leave service. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, you're not wrong, brother. And and I see that so much. I think we see it on two fronts now, right? Because this is also probably our our generation of warfighters right now is probably the most technologically advanced, uh, but able to get their stories out as quickly as possible. So you're seeing so much content, right? So many different people are deciding to write their books and tell their stories about what they went through. Uh, and I think that's really amazing to do, especially from a historical standpoint, to just have this amount of, uh, uh, you know, this wealth of uh, experience and knowledge that is absolutely uh, recorded and, and pushed out to the masses, I think is amazing. And you're right. And I could spend all day disparaging the VA, but I could talk to them blue in the face. It won't change anything. And so we do see that we have to help each other. And the beauty of that is the the exponential rise of the veteran nonprofit machine, if you will, right? And so all these veterans are getting out and understanding that the VA is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It can't accommodate, you know, let's call it the 3 million veterans or whatever it is, if we are truly the 1%. So then we decided that we'll do it on our own. And, you know, I've also taken up that, that, uh, that mantle as well. And I started a nonprofit called Bastards Road Project. And I take veterans on long distance hikes to show them what I went through, but also to show them that they're very capable of doing something very strenuous, both mentally and physically. And then to see gorgeous parts of this country that that they fought for. And, you know, our tagline is walk long distances, figure some shit out. And that's all we do. So, yeah, when you got home, uh, uh, what year did you did you get out of the Marine Corps? I got up, uh, my last day was September 21st of 2009, and I rolled right into the University of Maryland. Uh-huh. And so I was, I was double majoring. I was actually two weeks late for class when I got out of the Marine Corps. Uh, so, and the, my professors knew it already, and so we were fine. Uh, and I, I rolled right into a double major of Arabic and Russian because I had already learned Arabic in the Marine Corps, and then I started to dabble with Russian. And so I was like, well, screw it. I can just phone this in, and I'll get a degree real quick and move, on, move about my way. And, you know, I was doing really well for about a year and a half. And then something just happened and I started going to the bars more and stopped going to class. And I really felt that I was kind of a, like looking back on it, I really felt that I was a fish out of water. And 
uh, all of these kids. And it was right around the time that all these kids were protesting about being in Afghanistan. Uh, and there were just, there were these constant protests on campus. And I was like, I don't want to be a part of any of this. Uh, so I would just avoid it altogether. And that's, and it found me at the bars. And then here we go. Now I'm drinking at a bar. I'm not going to class. And, you know, there's the first DUI. And then shit, almost a year to the day of the first one is the second one. And then followed in short order uh, after the cop dropped me off back home, which I still don't understand to this day why I wasn't arrested for the second one. Uh, I think he took pity on me. Uh, understand? I, I think he did. And uh, he dropped me off at home and said, hey, man, uh, don't worry about it. Go get your car in the morning. You know, we didn't impound it. It's in a parking stall. You're fine. And uh, that's when I decided I would go in and uh, end it all. And, you know, you're looking in the mirror and you you hate yourself. You hate what you've become. Uh, I blame the Marine Corps. Uh, and then, you know, at the same time, I've disgraced the Marine Corps. I've disgraced my family name. Uh, I'm not a good dad. And, you know, I'm not a good friend and I don't need to do this anymore. And so I started emptying pills into my stomach. Right. And that mm. was the moment. And after all these pills started getting into my stomach, uh, it started cramping. Right. And like it was <clears throat> they're doing what what you wanted it to do, John. And I realized I didn't want that. And I was like, oh, no, I've made a <laughs> I made an even bigger, bigger mistake. So I got in the car uh, and <laughs> I drove from College Park, Maryland to uh, Baltimore, Maryland to the VA hospital in Baltimore. That's probably about a 45 minute drive. And I drove that in 17 minutes and wow. I was cooking. So I broke every rule. If there was a law on the road, I broke it. <laughs> um, but I got there and, you know, here comes the stomach pumping uh, and, and all that. And so that happens. And then I wind up in the, uh, on the sixth floor in the psych ward. And so I'm there for four or five days and I'm, you know, I'm broken and I'm just sitting there like doing puzzles and coloring. And I see on the news, there's this dude named Mike Vitti, who is an army captain. And he had walked one kilometer for each person that was killed in Iraq or Afghanistan since the 01 kickoff. And I just, something, it just, it started speaking to me. And I was like, I have to, I have to do that. And so I got out of the hospital a few days later and I was just charged. Right. And I was like, I have this mission, but how do I complete it? Because I'm 308 pounds. I'm an absolutely disgusting food blister right now. And you know, what do I do? So I got on a mountain bike and I rode a mountain bike for 10 months and went from 308 to about 198 and then said, okay, now you can do this. And so I told all my boys what I was doing. And uh, there was no plan to the walk or to the route I took. And I just started walking. And September 11th at 1.15 in the morning, here we go. Wow. So that, it, this uh, entire project of yours really kicked off uh, just by watching a television clip. And it gave you your purpose. Yeah. And the guy's name was uh, Mike Beatty. And so he had... Uh, he, he had been, he had, you know, graduate of the military academy at West Point, and uh, he had been in some pretty uh, austere positions as well. And uh, he was showing up at the Army-Navy game, which was, you know, because this is now November of 2014. The Army-Navy game's always in December. Uh, it's usually either at M&T Bank in Baltimore or it's in Philly, and that, that year it was in Baltimore. And so he was ending at the Army-Navy game at halftime. And I didn't, I didn't see the 
I didn't see the luster in that piece, uh, but I did see the merit in doing what he was doing, and it just spoke to me. So you decided, okay, you were going to visit all uh, your former Marine buds. How, how did uh, the plan come to be here? <laughs> well, I just, you know, I just got on the road and started walking, and I was supposed to head south first, mm-hmm. uh, but I ended up, I ended up accidentally heading north because I had two buddies that lived up by the Pennsylvania border. Uh, so I met with one on the first day that I walked. The first day was only about 20 miles, I think, and I got to him. Uh, and then I stayed with him for two days, I think, maybe three. And then I walked even further north to another buddy uh, who was almost damn near on the Pennsylvania border. And then uh, then I turned around and started walking south. And so the route is pretty circuitous. And when, you, when I kind of tell it to you, you're going to be like, wow, that's really insane. So it starts in Maryland, goes down to, all the way down to Miami. And then I trace the Gulf into Texas mess around all through Texas, uh, down all the way down to San Antonio and Corpus Christi, and then up to uh, Lubbock and a bunch of places in between, Houston, Austin, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dallas. And then uh, into Colorado, back east to Nebraska, uh, up to South Dakota, then to Wyoming, and then Montana, Idaho, Washington, and then down the western seaboard. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. That's yeah. That, so it's that's 19 states, of, and it's and it's not a straight line. <laughs> no, no, it definitely wasn't a straight line. Now I have to ask. I mean, there's some pretty desolate areas you're crossing there. Um, did you have any uh, interactions with some wildlife out there? Oh, brother, absolutely. Uh, the <laughs> only the only animal I did not experience that. Uh, the United States has to offer is the grizzly bear. And I am okay with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, crossing over the Bighorn mountains in, uh, in Wyoming, you know, I, I encountered a white wolf uh, about oh, wow. 20, 30 feet from me, just absolutely stunning. And then, you know, I was in, I was in, uh, I was West of high point, North Carolina, uh, out into the woods, uh, heading into Tennessee for a, for a minute and then back down. And, uh, man, I, I had a dream that uh, an elephant was stepping on my head, right? And I come out of this dream, I wake up and there's still pressure on my head, but now it's breathing. And I'm realizing that there is a black bear sniffing my head through my sleeping bag. And oh, man. Uh, so that, that was, that was pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I, I, oh God, I got stalked by a mountain lion in Blodgett, Oregon for almost three days. Uh, he, he was a big Tom too, man. I mean, he must've been 300 pounds. He was absolutely huge. And, uh, yeah, he, he just kind of, he walked with me for quite a few days and, you know, never getting any further than about a hundred meters away from me. Uh, but the closest he ever got was about 10 meters. And, uh, and that, that's a little too close for comfort. Yeah. Especially a big cat like that. 
Yeah, and I mean, he's just looking at me like, all right, how do I figure this dude out? Because that looks like lunch. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the rucksack might have thrown him off, you know. like uh, I think that's the only thing that really kind of helped me is is I don't look like a standard human walking through the woods. uh, And I don't look like an easy target. And maybe even to him, to a predator, I might look like I have armor. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so that, you know, I think that probably (laughs) went in my favor. So, you know, as, you, as you're doing this, how did the film project come to be? So I never started out with any idea, any inclination, any desire really to, you know, document this in any sort of documentary platform. Uh, Brian Morrison, the guy who put the film together, right, mm-hmm. so your filmmaker, your editor, your composer, all of this, uh, he and I actually went to high school together. Now, I didn't know him, and let's be really real about this. He was a year ahead of me. Uh, he was a jock. I was a pothead, so they don't mesh. And, uh, <laughs> I and thought you were so, going to say the other have the opposite effect, <laughs> right? <laughs> but so he had he had contacted me through a, a mutual friend when I was down in Slidell, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and he had just kind of called me and talked to me for about three hours, I think. And you know, he kind of proposed this idea of you know I don't know exactly what what to do with all this, but I'd really love to document it. And I'd really love to record it and record your story. And I was super reticent about that, man. And, you know, I slept on it and, you know, I really thought about it and, and, you know, thought about what I was really doing. And if I'm going to actually try to help people, then why wouldn't you want to try to document this and put this into some sort of, you know, documentary format. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about it for a little while. And then I had to pause the walk in Lubbock, Texas, so I could fly back to Maryland and do a VA appointment that I could not miss. Cause we all know you miss a VA appointment. They'll stack you to the bottom of the deck and they'll call you nine years later. So yeah. I decided I was like, okay, let's not do that. So I paused the walk, went home. He lived about a mile and a half from my folks house. So after this VA appointment in Baltimore, one day, I just came back, called him and said, Hey man, do you want to get together and let's see about this interview? So we sat down, I sat down on camera uh, for about two hours and we kind of felt each other out and we just told stories and uh, just trying to, trying to figure it all out. And next thing you know, it was like, okay, this can work. And I'm really, I'm, I can do this. And so now comes the difficult part because, you know, all the boys know that I'm walking, all the gold star families know that I'm walking, but now all of a sudden after Lubbock, Texas, right? I took this little hiatus, all of a sudden now I got this camera guy attached to me. And so that that was a little odd at first. And we talked to uh he the first time he came out to film me, uh he would fly out about eight I think eight more times over the over the duration of the rest of my walk and in different uh-huh. places. Uh and he would he would come in and, and meet with these guys and meet with these families and, you know, interview them. And so the first one that we did was Levi Gibbs out at North Platte, South uh, uh, Nebraska. And I was, you know, I was pretty petrified because Levi's a, Levi's a pretty towering individual. Um, and so I was like, oh, man, I got to call my brother and tell him, you know, hey, what do you think? And so I called him about two weeks prior to me getting to his house. And I was walking through Colorado at the time. And I asked him and I said, hey, man, what do you think about this? And he goes, well, I, I only got one question for you. I mean, is, is Brian on the level? And I was like, yeah, I trust him. And he goes, all right, if you trust him, then let's try it. And, you know, that, that's really how it all kind of came to be. It was just the amount of trust that we've had in each other, uh, that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't try to hurt or do anything bad to each other. And that, sure, there's this camera and there's this thing, so let's, let's try it. And if it, you know, we've always said, Brian and I have always said, well, hell, if the movie sucks, at least 
you know, we've got something for two, four to watch and, and kind of understand, you know, what went on a little bit. Uh, and, you know, fortunately for us, the, the movie doesn't suck and, you know, it's helping people. Now, now when uh, he had a film crew out there, uh, was it a big one or really? A, oh, no, a, he's, yeah, no, he worked, he worked by himself. So he didn't oh, have really? a boom operator or a sound guy or anything. He would pack. It was amazing to see the amount of camera gear he would pack into a rental car and then come track my ass down. Uh, you know, and so I'm, I'm looking at all this like, good Lord, you flew with all this? Like, what was your what was your excessive baggage fee? Like, is that got to be a thousand dollars? So but yeah, he would just and he would he would come out and just work like a madman uh, for, you know, four or five days. And we would it would be nonstop. I mean, he'd he'd get me in the car and be like, all right, where's the most beautiful place you walked in the past month? And I'm like, oh, over there. And he's like, well, we got to go over there and you got to rewalk it so that I can film it. And I'm like, I've already, dude, I've already walked it, man. <laughs> and then, you know, there were certain times where, you know, he wouldn't be able to come out for another two weeks or something. But knowing that, like, let's say the Badlands was coming up or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Fourth of July passed through Idaho. And so he would we would drive out to these places so he could film me walking it, knowing damn well that now I've seen what I have to walk through. I've already walked it. Now he's going to drop me back off where he picks me up from when he leaves. And I got to go rewalk everything that, and, you know, knowing the future of what's to come. And I'm like, Oh my God, I got to walk up this hill twice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was, it was ridiculous, but that's, I mean, that's what we had to do. It was a, you know, it was a one man operation in filming and it was a two man operation in trying to build this thing. It was crazy. Yeah, uh, having done some security work for the film industry, I mean, for a a filmmaker to be his own director, cameraman, sound guy, editor, the whole nine yards, hats off to him. That's uh, oh yeah, that's that's not an easy job. You know, I remember you you talked about all the Gary fluid. I I remember on one of the war films that I worked on, that the still photographer, the, the guy who just takes still photos. Yeah. He had like, you know, those big long carts you see in the airport that carry people's luggage. Oh yeah. He he, he had three of those with just all of his camera gear, and that's just a yeah. still photo guy. <laughs> right. I mean, it's insane. And you know, I didn't I didn't know anything about cameras before you know Brian showed up in my life. Uh, sure, I know that we have them, and you can take pictures with them. Uh, I had no idea, you know, what any of this 4K, 8K, 10K, whatever the hell this all is. Uh, whatever that was and then to realize that he used the camera that they used to shoot the avengers movies with and i was like oh shit so then you start wondering well how much is that camera and then you start realizing that you're getting into six digit numbers of camera equipment and you're like wow this is like this is impressive wow that's awesome and now, you know, when he joined you, uh, uh, you know, what was the, uh, I, I want to say, well, I want to ask, did it change any of the interactions you had with either your former, like, uh, you know, guys of your unit or the Gold Star families having the camera there? Or do you think it was still uh, natural for you people? No, it was, it, you know, and I, I worried about it. And uh, in the beginning, you could see it for a little bit. But as more and more guys started talking to each other about, hey, Hancock just came to me. Oh, yeah, Brian's attached. Hey, it's actually super easy. Don't even worry about it. Just act like Brian's not even there. 
Well, I had already been working with Brian so much that I for, I just forgot about the camera and just did my thing because uh, it didn't matter to me. I'm the same person on or off camera. So it just it felt natural to me. So that I think me being so natural and me just ignoring the hell out of him. Uh, it I can't I think that kind of subconsciously gave all the other guys, uh, you know, permission to, to do the same and just be like, oh, well through it like Hancock's here and we're just going to have fun. Right. I, I have to ask you, I'm getting off subject with your name uh, growing up in Massachusetts, John Hancock. Okay. That was, <laughs> that's, that's a, you know, a very famous name uh, in the American revolution did, did, uh, oh, absolutely. did you run into some issues with that, especially going through the Marine Corps uh, boot camp? I, I can imagine something happened there, but growing up, was that an issue for you? Well, you know, I I learned very quickly, uh, and a, I think a lot quicker than my peers, uh, what a cock was. <laughs> and then, uh, and, and and then, you know, I I say to this day, hey man, listen, if you can make a joke about uh, my name and I laugh, I will give you a thousand dollars because I've heard absolutely everyone, and none of it's funny anymore. But you know, you got to give everybody their chance to try. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, growing up, uh, you know, again, John Hancock was, you know, one of the big uh, rabble rousers, I guess, in the American Revolution, you know, in the Boston oh, absolutely. area. So, uh, absolutely. Was. yeah, he, he was the one that signed the Declaration of Independence in big, huge letters right in the middle so the king would see it. So. Yeah, so the king could see it without his specs. <laughs> yeah. Does that fit your uh, personality a little bit? You know, I'd, 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 I'd venture to say yes without tooting my horn too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. You're keeping up the tradition then. Absolutely. And, it, you know, what do we have if we don't have tradition? So yeah, if i got to be an asshole, sometimes I guess I can do that too. <laughs> well, so, you know, as uh, the guy who put me through SF training said, sometimes it's better to be a bad influence than no influence at all. Hey, there you go, brother. I mean, that's that's not that's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I have to ask you, you know, as you're making your trip, I mean, 5,800 miles across the, the country. Did, did anyone join you along the way for any length of time? Uh, so, yeah, it, uh, I had one Marine join me uh, in New Braunfels, Texas, as I was walking down to the Alamo in San, uh, in San Antonio. And that was going to be a two-day walk, I think it was. And I had to dial it down for him because he hadn't, you know, he wasn't training and didn't do, you know, 30 miles a day. Uh, so I, I whittled it down to doing, I think we ended up doing 40 miles over two days. I figured 20 miles a day, uh, you know, you wake up at five and then, uh, you know, you're done by two in the afternoon. So, you know, that, that, that's a good move. Well, he, he had, and of course he's, He's a Marine, and so he brings out this honking ruck, right? And this thing's as heavy as mine. And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? And he goes, well, if you're doing it, I'm doing it. And I was like, I get that, homie. But, like, you're going to die over the next two days. Like, you haven't trained for this. And sure as shit, the next day, man, I mean, the last mile into the Alamo, he, he I mean, he was limping into the Alamo. And we had some news crew there, some local affiliate for, you know, whatever. Um, and they were down there, and they filmed us in, and, uh, and then the other really beautiful uh, join was right at the end, and it was the last, I want to say it was the last four or five days. 
And Kerry Schrag, who is the youngest brother uh, and a gold star brother of Dustin Schrag, who we lost uh, in Iraq in on May 3rd, uh, he joined me. And he's, he's in the film as well, but he joins me uh, for, I think, the last 75, 78 miles uh, from Long Beach all the way down into Pendleton. Wow. So at least yeah, you had so a was, little bit of company. Really neat. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, because I was, I was very lonely for a long period of time. Uh, and, you know, those, those massive amounts of relief would come when I finally did get to another brother's house, another Gold Star family's house. There was this relief. Uh, of, you know, not being lonely and, and just wanted to talk. And, and I think that's why our conversations were so absolutely uh, just heartfelt and warming and, and supportive was because, you know, I had, I had been experiencing this thing and now I get to experience your grief with you uh, and we get to share that. Yeah, you know, because um, I was thinking about this as, you know, reading your story and I, I often wondered, you know, you talk about it's it's a exercise in healing, not only for yourself, but for the people that you're meeting. But, you know, when you're on the road and you have all that solitude and you're around some some of the most beautiful areas that our country can offer. I often wondered where your thoughts were. I mean, I'm sure your thoughts must have been all over the place at that point. Well, you know, I, I at, at some point, you know, when I would see these just absolutely gorgeous areas. Uh, I would become pretty sad. And it was because, you know, I'm looking at just sheer beauty. I'm walking through a postcard and, uh, you know, my brothers aren't here to experience this and they'll never experience it. And so that was very sad for me. Uh, but, you know, uh, I guess a few days ago, uh, a, a Marine brother of mine had watched the film and uh, he, he wrote something. And, you know, at the end he said, your brothers are seeing this because uh, you are living for them and, and you're actually their emissary and you uh, and because you are still living, they absolutely do get to see it. And that really hit me hard. And I thought that was really neat. Um, so, you know, that it kind of changes perspectives over time. But, uh, you know, there were so many different times that my thoughts would go into some of these really deep, dark memories. Uh, and what I was finding was that over the course of time, I was able to access all of my memories from combat. Uh, even the very difficult ones, and I was continually accessing them while pushing myself through something very physically demanding. And by doing that, I was actually kind of doing this really amped up, if you would consider it a cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, but I was just doing it alone. And I've learned that I'm now able to access my memories uh, without becoming just a, a big sobbing mess on the ground. And I can I can kind of weave my way in and out of the memory without it truly affecting me uh, to the point of like debilitation, if you will. And, and do you think that uh, a lot of the guys, you know, that, that were suffering from your unit, do you think this helped them out a lot? Uh, I, I know it has. And that's great. I won't say it's helped every single person, but I can tell you that there have been uh, a multitude of magnificent bastards who have called me uh, or text me, wrote me, emailed me something uh, telling me uh, that it has helped them and that, you know, it's helped their wives or it's helped their mothers or it's helped their family to understand a little bit more. And that means the world to me. Yeah, because I think, you know, military guys, that they're much more willing to talk to another military person, be it a Marine Absolutely. or Army guy. You know, it's it's tough for them to explain to their 
to their parents or their spouse when they get home because they, you know, nothing against your families. They're all there for you, but they just don't understand. They don't right. understand what's and going on. No, yeah, they don't. And I think the other sad thing that we don't talk about, but is is also a piece of this is, sure, there's moral injury and, you know, you were raised a certain way. I got that. But uh, I think there is a massive fear of judgment. I know there was for me. I know there has been for others. Um, I try not to speak for the veteran populace as a whole. I can't do that. I don't know every veteran. I don't know what they've all experienced. Uh, but I do know what I've experienced, and I do know what my brothers told me. And I think there is a massive amount of fear of judgment for doing something uh, that they have they can't put into context of why that would happen. Uh, and so the civilian population, uh, and because it happens, and you know there are idiots out there, and and just you know real works of art that uh, decide to call you you know baby killer or something, uh, and that happens. And so I think there, I think the other reason that uh, you know I shut down for a long time was that I didn't want to have that happen, and I didn't want to continually experience that while trying to tell my story. And so I buttoned up for a long time. Right, and it, I, there's a there's always a great deal of survivor guilt as well wouldn't you say for sure yeah absolutely there especially is. And, in a unit you know, that suffered so so badly right absolutely and i know a lot of guys uh a lot of guys feel the same way and they just you know they wish these guys were here and they we wish that we took their place that's the sad part um yeah. i have to add when you when you reach pendleton what was that like uh, you know, walking through the gates there. Uh, that was amazing because it was the last day. And, you know, I'd actually really arrived in San Clemente two days prior. Right. And so that truly was the end of the walk. Right. Because the last eight miles are, you know, into Pendleton. Uh, and, you know, I can do eight miles standing on my head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, walking in on Friday and no one was around and, it, you know, cars are whizzing by and it's just me and Brian and Carrie Schrage and, you know, I kind of hugged everybody and was like, okay, it's over. And he goes, well, it's not really over. I mean, we still have Monday to do, but uh, yeah, it's kind of over. And it was kind of lackluster, right? And then, you know, Monday morning at 08, I step off from uh, the Ole Hansen Beach House uh, where I'd walked into on Friday. And, you know, there's, God, there's a hundred dudes with me. Uh, people from all over the country flew in to come and support and walk with me. Uh, guys I hadn't seen in hell guys i hadn't seen in in 16 years 14 years uh and for them to be there with me at the end uh was absolutely amazing then you walk through the gates of pendleton and this is to really show you how far the military has come uh when it when it comes to uh the softer side of the house the emotion side of the house and speaking out about things that you've experienced uh second time fourth marines the entire current unit participated in that day and they lined every marine from that battalion lined the road and as I walked by them, they saluted, and then they got in formation behind us. And, you know, so now I'm walking with an entire battalion of Marines, plus, you know, 150 people uh, that have flown all over the country. And then when I get there, you know, there's elements of all, you know, one five two five three five are all there. And, you know, there's, hell, there's 4,000 people at the end of this thing. And, you know, my son's there, and uh, it, it was it was absolutely one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life to experience that amount of support from the active military and from the active Marine Corps. Um, it, I, I, 
you know, I, I, I struggle with how to show you emotionally what I was feeling or tell you emotionally what I was feeling because it was overload. It was absolute overload, but in the best way possible. That had to have been, yeah. Um, you had to have been after 5,800 miles. I know it sounds silly, but you had to have been walking on air at that point. Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that ruck didn't weigh a damn pound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know we talked offline and, uh, you uh, tell our listeners of what your feet look like at the end of this. Oh, buddy, I, I tell you what, my, my feet look like a prehistoric riverbed. <laughs> I mean, it was, they were absolutely rugged. Uh, you know, and I had, uh, the problem is, is I had been getting blisters for about 4,000 miles, right? Because I never gave my, ch- my feet a chance to heal. So every day after I'm done with the day, I would just lance these blisters. I'd let them drain. I'd pack them full of powder. I'd wrap them up in tape super tight. And then the next morning, I would unwrap the tape. I'd repack them with powder, rewrap the tape, and then get on with the walk for the day. So for 4,000 miles, I'm walking on blistered feet, and it was tough. Uh, Not until I got to the PCT, right, to the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, at the Bridge of the Gods between Washington and Oregon, and I got onto the PCT that I stopped getting blisters because, you know, for the next seven or eight days, uh, maybe nine days that I was walking on the PCT, I was walking on pine needles. And, I mean, I was just walking on pillows, and it was awesome. So that gave my my feet a chance to really heal up from a lot of the, the hard pounding of roads and uh, dirt road and all that. And so after that, I didn't really have too many more blisters. Uh, until right at the end, when I, when I definitely, uh, I definitely got a few shoring up uh, coming into, uh, coming into San, uh, San Clemente before the end of the walk. Well, um, let's talk a little bit more about the film, Bastard's sure. Road. Uh, yeah, it, it won the best documentary at the 2020 Santa Barbara Film Festival, the Audience Award at the Slam Dance 2020. Um, you know. Uh, uh, what's your thoughts on how uh, how all of this turned out? Well, I was I was <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to do what it did. Um, you know, so we we world premiered at Santa Barbara International Film Festival, and the first day we had a uh, I think we had a theater that was probably a hundred and fifty seat theater, uh, and it wasn't full. It wasn't dead. I'd I'd call it about a hundred and twenty people in there. And there, there were definitely a few seats open, but it was still pretty full. Uh, and then after that, we had a Q&A and everyone stayed. And Santa Barbara is not a military town, right? I mean, that's it's pretty far north up there, north of L.A., and it's it's pretty hoity-toity up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there's not a lot of military up there. And they stayed. And then, you know, I walked outside after this Q&A and everyone's still out there and now all the people that have seen this film are talking to all these other people who are you know waiting in line to see another film and everyone's crying and you know I was I, it really affected people and then the next day we get a phone call that evening that says hey you've got a venue change uh tomorrow I think it was a Sunday your film is being shown at the libero theater which is like a 650 person theater and when I showed up, like, I think I showed up about an hour before the film was screening. And because uh, I was hanging out with a couple of Marines that chose to come up and hang out with us and, you know, experience this whole thing together. I mean, we turned the corner and there is a line down the block to get into this movie. And I'm like, oh, shit, like, this is big. 
and the the theater was packed and you know just seeing the connection that was made at every one of these film festivals uh throughout the course of 2020 and it, it the connection to the civilian population was amazing and it was something that i've always wanted to do is to bridge that gap between veteran and civilian so that you know maybe the civilian doesn't have to ask those dumb questions anymore uh and maybe they don't have to feel awkward for asking questions uh but if we can give them something that not every veteran experiences the same way but to understand one man's story of struggle and redemption uh it might give them a little bit better insight into the veteran population as a whole uh, and, you know, maybe pause for a second and give give a, a little bit of a, a listening ear for a little bit longer uh, and maybe not be so quick to judge. And so to see that and to, to experience this over this past year and then, you know, with the film kind of getting picked up through Gravitas and then having this uh, this major release on all these streaming platforms and cable, you know, TV on demand platforms, uh, it's been humbling. And, you know, I'm not. I'm not worried about people watching my story for fear of, you know, me <laughs> feeling bad about it or something. Uh, I'm actually very happy that people get to start seeing this because what I'm, what we're noticing is so many, so many veterans are aligning to this and saying, this is it like screw Hollywood. They never get it right. This is where it's at. And, you know, I think, I think if we're doing anything, we're showing other veterans, uh, that it's possible to tell your own story and that you should tell your own story and not to allow Hollywood to tell it. Oh, that's great. And uh, the music video that went along with it was, I thought, extremely well done, and it, I thought it fitted perfectly. Um, oh, absolutely. You... And, you know, I mean, Brian Brian built that music video, too, with Luke, uh, and, of course, Luke's the, the singer-songwriter for that. Uh, but yeah, they, all the all the music is original music in this film, and it was mm -hmm. created by Dan uh, Dan Strout and Mike Mark Skivens and Luke uh, James Schaefer, who are you know uh, Mike is a uh, Mike's a violinist, but he's also uh, he's also an army veteran, uh, and so he you know he's very close to this project. So when you hear that violin throughout the film, just know that that's an army veteran playing that. <laughs> that's awesome. I have to ask you, how many pairs of boots did you go through on this trip? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I went through seven <laughs> pairs of shoes. <laughs> wow. All yeah. right. Uh, without uh, giving free advertising, was there one specific brand that you were wearing? Uh, yeah, it starts with an M. And everybody wears <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly which one you're saying. I, I actually have seven pairs of those that begin with an M. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Hey, uh, John, I, I really want to thank you for, for uh, taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it. We appreciate all you're doing because, you know, when with uh, Memorial Day right around the corner, you know, this is a time when we think about our veterans who we've lost. PTSD is such a big issue right now with all branches of the service and as we all know, that we're losing too many veterans to suicide uh, every day. And, and this is a story, I think, that will, you know, resonate with our veteran community. And, and people know that there's help out there because I thought, you know, your story is one of it's, it's about healing. But it's, it's I, to me, it's more about hope. Yeah. Yeah, brother. And. You know, thanks for having me today, and thanks for allowing me the time to to talk and and to kind of share my, I guess my 
my my abilities or my my desires with you on this film and on you know going forward and helping veterans uh and it is it is truly a, a story about hope and that you know if you you know just wake up another day man and just put your feet on the ground and do something and i promise you it gets better and you know that's i had to i don't suggest you walk 5800 miles to go find that out but if it's if that's you know if that's something you want to do i'll support you in it but uh, you know, find something that it, you're passionate about and and do it again. And don't give a shit about anybody else and what they think of it. Go figure yourself out by, you know, allowing yourself to do the thing you want to do. And that's really all it is for me, man. And mine mine is walking and talking. And, you know, for other guys, it's, it's a gym or other guys, it's, you know, rock climbing or whatever it is. But I, I can tell you, that the thing that I've learned about myself and about every other veteran who has made it out of the darkness uh, is you have to do something physical every day. You have to put yourself in a position where you sweat and build that sweat equity for yourself. And it helps. And, you know, if I can leave anybody with that, it's, you know, go <laughs> just go outside and walk around some beautiful area, some massive, you know, national park or national wilderness. And I promise you'll feel better. That's awesome. Well, Hats off to you, John. I mean, uh, like I said, we really appreciate the time. And that that is a fantastic story. Folks, uh, please check it out. Bastards Road, it's it's available on all those streaming services. Uh, not only on television, you can download it on your computer. So uh, it, it's definitely worth the time. Uh, you know, with Memorial Day right around the corner, I can't think of a better time to check it out. But uh from all of us here at softrep.com, we want to thank you all for listening. But before we go, you know, uh, if you want to get SoftRep on your phone, download our free mobile app and get easy access to articles, podcasts, gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to all our library of ebooks and our exclusive team room forums and content available on all Apple and Android devices. John, thanks again for taking the time with us. This was fantastic, and congratulations on a job very well done. Thanks, brother. Absolutely. You have a wonderful day, and enjoy your Memorial Day. You too. All right, brother. Take care. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.